Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are talking about the somewhat desperate situation called stagflation. It's an economic term, but what does it mean for you? And more importantly, what does it mean for your investments? Where are the sectors to invest to capitalize on this the most? And where are the ones to avoid? See you in the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter. And as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Laurentiel. Thanks for having me, Mr. Mr. Baxter. Pleasure to be here, my friend, face to face as we love to see. Indeed, it's nice to be out of lockdown. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And speaking of lockdowns, let's talk about some of the economic issues that that poses. Jumping straight into today's topic, stagflation. Mm. Something that something our viewers may or may not be familiar with, but nonetheless yeah. an important topic. Look, it is. And look, it's not a term you're going to hear very often in your lifetime. It's that rare an occurrence, but it's actually very topical to where we are right now for a number of reasons. It's not good news. But it can be used as a very, very good tool to create some good money-making opportunities. So we'll dive in what it is, how it affects us, and perhaps most importantly, where the money's made if we find ourselves sliding into a period of economic <laughs> stagflation. And it's not a good period to be in. So what exactly, what exactly is stagflation, AB? Well, as its name would suggest, stagflation is where your economy starts to stagnate. It's where you start to see slower economic growth. Uh, but rising inflation, which is a double whammy of what you don't want. You want inflation under control and a growing economy. And uh, look, as we look not just at the Australian economy, but also uh, at the US, uh, there are a lot of signs that I'm seeing based on my economics background, my trading experience, uh, that are pointing us very, very much towards that. If we look at Australia, we're sitting an interest rate of 3.8% for the previous June quarter. I think those statistics are due for uh, uh, announcement on the 27th of this month, and we'll see what the September quarter had to offer. Uh, the RBA's target for inflation, of course, in Australia is between 2 and 3%, so we are already outside of that. It's been explained away by one-off unique COVID factors. We'll see if those factors continue to roll forward, which I suspect they will. Over the pond and in the US, yeah, if we look at inflation um, in the US, we're looking at 5.3% currently, which is pretty strong. Um, and, and the problem you have with low, low interest rates and, and a central bank that's not wanting to raise interest rates, and I think our central bank, and I've been no uh, shrinking violet on this comment, uh, asleep at the wheel, and I'd go so far as to say almost negligent in terms of their decision not to be looking to just turn the rate dial up just a touch get inflation back under control and keep the economy on track. And we'll explain a little bit about that as we go through. So very, very interesting crossroads. The challenge you have with an economy, if it drifts into stagflation, it's really, really hard to drag it back out again. Uh, so it is a, a major, major problem. Have we seen any other examples of stagflation before mm. in history? Probably the biggest example of this would have been way back in the uh, 1970s. Uh, and that was Similar but different, if you can say such a thing. Um, you know, in the 1970s, we saw high interest rates uh, and low equity valuations at that point in time, whereas now we've got very, very low interest rates and very high equity valuations. But we did see a period uh, through there uh, where inflation was really starting to get out of control and economic growth was slowing down. Of course, the 1970s, and particularly around uh, that time, uh, was largely attributable to the significant rise in oil prices. Um, you know, that was a, a major factor that affected the global economy um, prior to OPEC's foundation. And, and, and yeah, we saw some uh, massive moves up in, in, in oil prices, which effectively crippled the world's economy. Sure. And it's what we're seeing right now. There's a fuel shortage in Europe and also in China as yeah, well. Yeah, right? not just a shortage. We're seeing some crazy pricing on that. And we'll get into that from an inflation perspective in a moment. Uh, another almost stagflation, a little bit more recent one to take a little bit out of, 
Um, if you go back to say 2004-05, a lot more recent as an example, uh, and what we started to see through there was a not dissimilar set of circumstance where economic growth uh, had started to slow, interest rates uh, were moderate, they were about 4.5% or so at the time, but inflation was starting to get out of control. You also had a period then where you had companies coming out with very, very good earnings, which we've obviously seen in the US. Um, you know, the last earnings cycle, I think on average, was about a 28% jump uh, in earnings uh, relative to the previous year. So a, a lot of those factors are there. The big one that we're seeing at the moment um, is in that energy price space, and that is a massive, massive risk on for markets right now. Does the labor market also pose an issue for the broader the broader sort of concept of stagflation? We've yep. just seen a jobs report, for example, in the US for way below expectations. Yep. Unemployment is is on its way down, but it's still at at decent levels, right? Typically, in a in a period of stagflation, um, you've got no employment growth. In fact, you've got rising unemployment, which is something you you really don't want. Um, you know, you've got less people out of work, rising costs of living, and economic growth slowing down. That they're, they're, they're the sort of the trifecta, if you will, of misery and pain. Um, and uh, yeah, that jobs figure that came out of the U.S. last week very much um, has brought this discussion point front and center. Hence, why we're covering it today. Um, but it's not just unemployment, there's also underemployment too. Uh, you know, in Australia, it's a slightly different kettle of fish. Um, you know, our unemployment rate is still relatively high, um, probably closer to 8.5%. Eight, eight I know the official statistics are lower, but to be included in those official statistics, you need to be searching for work, and a lot of people aren't, and, that, and therefore they're not included in that figure. Sure. Also, if you're working um, two or three hours a week, you're considered employed even though Blind Freddy can tell you working two or three hours a week really isn't in gainful no. employment. So, yeah, there's a little bit of a distortion in that. And I guess you know, when it comes to looking at economic data, it is subject to a lot of distortion and seasonal variations and things like that. But the big, big risk I see out there at the moment, as I said, is in that energy uh, pricing space. Um, you know, and to give our listeners an idea, uh, if we look in, in at gas prices or petrol prices, you know, they're, they're, they're relatively strong and, and rising in both the US and, and the UK. There are shortages, uh, which is a major issue. Uh, you, know, you can't fill your car up. The garage has got to line up for 20 minutes to, to, to fill your car up, which is crazy. It's crazy. Um, if you look at, um, say, Germany, for example, which most of the heating uh, energy that's used there is natural gas. Natural, price, natural gas prices have jumped 300% in Germany over the last four months. And yeah, Russia has stepped in to rescue the situation. You'd argue they're also the culprit because they're the supplier <laughs> for, uh, for, for natural gas in Germany. But nonetheless, they're, they're increasing their supply to try and offer a uh, olive branch and, and help out. A lot of pieces to the puzzle there. And obviously, from the tenor of this conversation, AB, stagflation doesn't just happen overnight. There's obviously a process to yeah. get there. I'm guessing it's a fairly lengthy one. How, what factors make up the mm. onset of stagflation? One, one of the big ones, and, you know, and I know we've done a couple of economics uh, podcasts recently, and, and my goal isn't to muddy the waters for people. It's just to hopefully provide the opposite, some level of clarity in there. These major factors are important to understand. So in the case of stagflation, one of the, one of the ingredients or one of the primary ingredients, we've talked about rising costs and, and, and lower growth, is actually what's called cost push inflation. Now, if we just take a time out there for a moment and talk about inflation prices rising, not all price rises are the same. There are sure. slightly different components to that. Even though the net effect to you as the consumer is the same, the actual underarching uh, issue that's causing it can be different. So you get two types of, or two broad types. 
You can have demand pull inflation, which is where you've got a really strong economy and that demand is pulling prices higher. And you'd argue that would be the case in the housing market in Australia. Supply is naturally raising prices to meet demand, right? There's there's a huge demand. There's not enough supply coming on, so prices are moving up to to meet that. Um, If you you look at fine wines uh, or or timepieces or whatever it may be you're looking at, there's a finite amount of supply, a lot of demand there, pulling prices higher. If you look at the car market right now, because of production delays around the world, Demand for second-hand cars um, isn't necessarily higher, but demand for cars can't be met from new car sales. As a result, people are buying second-hand cars, increase in the demand for second-hand cars, keeping prices very, very strong. So that's an example of uh, demand pull, where prices are being pulled up by the consumer demanding more goods. Makes sense. On the other side of the equation is something called cost push inflation, which is a very different beast. And that's where um, the cost of ingredients to manufacture something have increased. And so the manufacturer of that component, that widget, whatever it may be, then pushes that higher cost onto the consumer. Which makes sense naturally, right? So, you know, some companies to an extent will absorb a price rise a little bit. Um, Some good examples of this, if we look at the construction industry in Australia right now, um, you know, if anyone's in the development space, they know exactly what I'm talking about here, or even in the renovation space. You know, if you look at cost of structural timber, it's pretty much doubled from what it was last year. Uh, If you're looking at getting steel, structural steel, if you're looking to get glass, it's all more expensive because there's been a a, a rising cost plus an absence of of providers that have pulled or pushed those prices higher. You're a timber supplier, you might absorb a couple of percent increase in the underlying, but at some point you've got to push that on. Now if we talk about energy prices and, and the higher oil prices, for example, just about everything on the planet in some way, shape or form is going to be a derivative or consumer of oil, whether that's in the raw materials that go in, plastics, for example, being part of that, or the energy to produce something, and then the packaging, which is made of plastic that wraps around it, and then shipping it around the world. And freight costs, as we know, you know a, a shipping container now is up you know, 300% on what it was last year. So costs have been pushed and they're being pushed onto the consumer too. So you've got two levels, if you will, uh, of inflation pushing through, but you're not getting the economic growth to absorb that. It's starting to squeeze margins. And when I mean margins, not in the company's pocket, but in the consumer's pocket, and that will slow economic activity down. A lot of pieces of the puzzle to unpack that. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and it is a real issue because no one wants to be paying more for something when money might already be tight. Yep. And we talk about the potential rise of interest rates, which mm. is obviously the most natural way to curb mm. inflationary pressures. A, B, if we did see a rise in interest rates from a central bank here in Australia, what do you think would be the net effect? Okay. We're already seeing interest rates rise, and I've been calling for this for an awful long time, and we've seen over the last couple of weeks, APRA, the Australian Prudential uh, Regulator, uh, put a bit of pressure on banks to change their lending requirements to take some sting out of the property market, but APRA's mandate is really narrow, and it's going to help manage bank lending. We're talking about inflation, which isn't just related to property. We're talking about that on, on all sorts of goods and services, and as such, Given that inflation, even if it's seasonally distorted or whatever the story might be, is outside of the bands, the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, is obligated under its mandate to keep inflation under control. And it's one of those things that you simply have to keep under control because once the horse is bolted, you know, it's pretty hard to get back in. Now, we're seeing central banks, the central bank in New Zealand, for example, uh, raised interest rates last week, so it's already happening. Not just New Zealand, Czech Republic, Poland, uh, Chile, 
Uh, I think Peru was another one in there, and, and various others. And okay, some of those are marginal countries, but New Zealand's pretty close to home for us. Sure. Very strong performing property market too, and, and, the, and the Bank of New Zealand there, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, have already moved to increase interest rates. As central bank, the RBA seem to be quite reluctant, and there's not enough evidence to justify it, and they want to see wage inflation uh, higher. You're not going to see wage inflation when you've got eight or nine percent of your population unemployed. It's just simply not going to happen, and, and so that full storm of what's being looked for is not going to come. Now, the challenge the Reserve Bank have is that, and I've talked about this extensively, they've boxed themselves heavily into a corner. The governor has come out and emphatically said, not just once but several times since, and very very strong language at that that they will not be raising interest rates until 2024. And I think that's negligent insofar as you can't set that goal that we're not moving based on a calendar. You've got to set that goal based on data. And if that data starts to support a very, very strong case for increasing interest rates, what exactly is the Australian Central Bank going to do now they've boxed themselves into such a tight corner? Are they going to fall on their sword and say, we got it wrong, sorry guys, yeah, we're going to have to increase interest rates this year? In which case, the comments, and this is why it rattles a cage for me, of any investor out there or any borrower has gone, we're okay to borrow, we haven't got to worry about rates for till 2024. And that's a very, very unfair backstop to provide people because if rates go up, you go, hang on, I was told it wasn't going to happen until 2024. I've made all my decision making, all of my budgeting, all of my borrowing based on this case. And now you've just moved the goalposts on me and I'm in some significant financial pain. So there's a real problem out there. Tough That's to swallow, doing, right? sure. Um, but you know, that inflation pressure, and we'll see it this month, we'll see what happens as it comes out. And we could be way off point with this. I suspect we won't be, but a small move now is a lot better than having to make a dramatic move later on. And I, I think the analogy I'd use, and we spoke of this just before, if, you, if you're driving your boat, if you've got a boat, you know, depending on what the tide and the weather's doing and the wind, but generally speaking, you're driving a boat, you're just keeping it ticking along in the ballpark direction, you've got your waypoint that you're looking for and you're slightly correct either way and away you go. And if you're slightly off course, it's maybe a, a third of a turn of the wheel and you're back on course. But if you leave it and you really start to drift off course and, and now we're over here, but we want to be over here, the boat's pointing that way because the wind's got it and we're going towards the seawall, you've got to spin that wheel pretty hard, hit the bow thrusters and do all sorts of work to try and get it back on track. If we convert that into the story of interest rates, a small move now, even a very, very small move now, 0.25 or even 50 basis points, half a percent, 0.5%, a move like that now, long term, will settle the property market down. It will also help curb some of the heat out of that inflation number, which is gaining momentum. If you don't do it now and you say, no, we're going to wait till 2024 because that's what we've said and interest rate, inflation starts to really get a hold and when inflation starts to gallop, it gets out of control very, very quickly. And go back to that story in the 1970s where you saw interest rates at the bank, 16, 17%. It's crazy. To try and bring things back under control is financially devastating, not just for people that have borrowed money for an entire economy. And I'm not suggesting that you're gonna see interest rates there, but you know, if you think about how geared most people are in today's current uh, environment where a lot of people have really borrowed heavily because it's cheap to borrow, you know, a, a, a three or four percent move in interest rates over three or four years would be crippling for many, many households, especially when you haven't got wage inflation. And that's a really nasty specter of what can be coming down the line. And I appreciate this may sound like you've talked about this before we have, and we'll keep talking about it because at the moment, all of the data points that we're looking at are suggesting that with inflation gaining more momentum, economic growth 
semi-stalling. And look, we're banking a lot on the reopening trade in Australia. We've been jabbed. I'm living in New South Wales, so nearly everybody in New South Wales, <laughs> even in Byron Bay. It's where Freedom I'm, Day for you today anyway, isn't it? It is Freedom Day today. And you would have thought so at the border coming in too, because it took me two and a half hours to get up here this morning. At least you're comfortable um, when you're cruising. Yeah, look, it's not much fun watching the fuel gauge go down, particularly when you're uh, <laughs> observing what fuel prices are going. But yeah, parking that to the side, you know, even in Byron Bay, you know, the sort of um, the three-wheeling you know, libertarian part of the country, the vaccination rates are surprisingly higher than what people think. So there's a huge amount of focus put on the reopening of the Australian economy, international travel, everything else that goes alongside it. And that may well provide us with some economic boost, but I think it's going to be fairly short term. You know, that taste of liberty we're all going to have, you can go out and, as we've seen in the media, everyone's at Kmart for whatever reason. It's not that exciting. You probably stage that over time. You could do Kmart online anyway. Um, <laughs> and, and, and as you know, people get used to being out and about, you'll see a slowdown in that spending. And then when the credit card bills fly in on the back of it, you'll definitely see a curb in that. So you know, we are going to get a little bit of a kick up in economic growth on the back of reopening as to how sustainable it is and where it takes us, who knows. I think it's important for our listeners too to have that helicopter view where it's not just about this month or this year, it's yep. about sort of three, four, five years down the track, particularly if you're making large purchases like a house. What needs to happen? You mentioned interest rates going up. Mm. Now, how much? Half a percent. What? How, how quickly would that come into effect to curb inflation if they did rise interest rates? Look, all, everything with an economy and economics takes time. It's, a, it's like a big oil tanker. You know, you make a change and it doesn't happen immediately. It just is that gradual move. You can't spin these things around on a sixpence. And so, you know, what would be the net impact of an interest rate move? Let's say, you know, you've got a loan of eight, $900,000, which would be, you know, ballpark where a lot of people would be sitting right now, given house prices. You know, servicing that's probably costing you a couple of grand a month, two and a bit maybe. Okay, and if you were to see you know, a, a half percent move in interest rates, you think, well, that's not that much. But if you're, say, on a three percent uh, type uh, interest rate on your loan, maybe it's a touch higher, but let's say it's three percent, that's about a 15, 16 percent jump in what you're paying. So that's another $320 a month, just to use the example following through, that you have to find from somewhere to put into servicing that home loan. Which you're not going to spend out for dinner or on new pair that of money, shoes. That money has to come from somewhere. Maybe it's coming out of your savings account, but we know people aren't great at saving. Chances are, and particularly given the cost of living at the moment, chances are it's going to come out of a form of spending. So all of a sudden, that money has to come from somewhere, and that has quite a dramatic impact. And that's why monetary policy, the changing of interest rates, is actually a pretty, like it is a sledgehammer tool to control your economy. There are other methods that you can use, APRA's. Lending guidelines be another one that's a bit of a slower mover, but the interest rate one has a fairly direct and immediate one because most households will look at their budget month in, month out. And you only need a month or two to see that you've got to find extra money for your mortgage before you start cutting down on other services and spending. And that will get the heat taken out of this pretty quickly. The challenge is people are geared up to buggery right now on the basis of a promise that they're not going to have to worry about interest rates until 2024. And that terrifies me because it is an extremely difficult warranty to provide and guidance to the market. And people do listen to a central bank and a central bank governor to say, this is the pillar of reason. They've got to have a reason for saying this. We can trust this view and let's hope they're right, they can. But on the off chance they can, I think we're in for some very, very difficult times. And as we see energy prices particularly moving up, that's a major box ticked in terms of the criteria, three or four things that you're going to start to look for for stagflation. So it is an important thing to understand. And once the cat's out of the bag, it's we're in trouble. So very, very, very hard to rein in because you know, what do you do if you've got inflation that's 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 really rising? 
and your economy is growing very slowly or slower than you expected, the fuel that you want to put on the fire is lower interest rates to stimulate your economy. The problem is when you do that, you're going to be actually stimulating inflation. So you're getting more of what you don't want in an attempt to resuscitate the thing that's dying. So that's where you look at things like tax cuts, which, you know, given the amount of money governments have spent around the world through government stimulus over the last couple of years, you know, the prospect of yeah. a tax cut, um, in, 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 and depending on your political bias, but if you're in America, given the fact that the Democrats are in power, you ain't getting a tax cut anytime soon, it's going the other way, um, you're going to have some real fundamental problems there. So, you know, that's, that's pretty hardcore. A lot of good information there, AB, and, and mm. connecting the dots here is, is obviously a skill set of yours, which we love hearing mm. about. And to put that into practice, if you are an investor, be it stock market, property, bonds, cash, whatever, well, not cash, not invested, but where, where would you be looking if you take that sort of two, three year view on this? Yeah. Look, one of the, one of the go-to places, the get out of jail card, do I tell you this or not? Do I say, oh, well, tune into next week? And we'll talk about <laughs> tell us. One, on. one of the sectors, and I've alluded to it already as, as we've spoken, is actually energy. It's usually a pretty good proxy uh, and, and, and I'm not going to say safe haven, but good speculative exposure during times of stagflation, particularly now as we're seeing energy prices move up, there's nothing that's likely to dampen that anytime soon. We've already got quite a substantial exposure to energy with some of our positions right now, so we're in the right place at the right time, people making money. But energy is typically a good go-to place under these circumstances. And uh, you know it's a miserable situation that's out there, that's your go-to. Um, you uh, probably just want to be fairly cautious uh, on your asset allocation towards a typical growth play in markets too, um, because you know if you start to see growth um, slowing, those growth type stocks will wear it pretty hard. Got you, got you. Tune in more, uh, sorry, tune in for more. Alcohol, alcohol, tobacco, people drinking, uh, alcohol, tobacco and gaming stocks. You have things that are tough, or if things are good, people drink and smoke and they have a punt. If things get really tough, they drink, smoke and have a punt even more. <laughs> so maybe you know, alcohol is not very environmentally sound, particularly on the back of the ESG broadcast we did a couple of weeks ago. But yeah, there's three other defensive areas to consider. Sure. Get on the turps and, uh, and hope that it all goes away. Oh, there you go. Great advice, <laughs> AB. Look, as we come to the end of the broadcast, plenty of good, plenty of good information in here. Learning to connect the dots is, uh, I guess, a greater issue of fundamental analysis, mm. which we teach. Any last words to cap us off? But one of the things on the back of this, and I appreciate this is a, a, it is a pretty meaty subject, and for a lot of people it's quite conceptual, and let's call a spade a spade. Learning fundamentals is probably the hardest thing to learn because sure. it, it takes time to understand how all of these pieces fit together. So one of the things that we're doing uh, for our clients, our inner circle, and there'll be some information on our Facebook, I'm sure, um, we're gonna run a live quarterly economics briefing where I'll go through this with the whiteboard rather than just audio, and we'll talk about how our sector plays are lining up to exploit, and I know that word sounds terrible, to exploit, um, the opportunities that the economy is presenting right now. Um, but yeah, it's a simple fact, our job is to put you in front of the investment opportunity. Um, we don't play God, we just set the appointment. Nice one, great way to finish. Thanks very much, AB. Absolute pleasure, anytime. There you have it guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating and we'll look forward to hosting you next week.